Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Meet me in James chapter 5. We are continuing in on our James series. We only have two more weeks to go this week and next week. Uh, hey, this week I was in Portland, Oregon all week long with a couple friends and and I was going over my sermon. If you didn't know this, one of the things I do is I invite a group of friends in that I, I trust and we actually do some pre-review on the sermon um, because I want to deliver God's best word to you and not just my word. So, so we're doing this and, and halfway through that I just decided I wanted to scrap the, the piffy intro that I normally do. Um, the, and and here, I want to just ask you one simple question. What do you do? What do you do when life is met with unmet expectations? I, I, that, I want you to sit with that for a moment. What do you do when your life is met with unmet expectations? You know, two weeks ago, my um, closest, one of my closest, dearest friends died. Um, and I just want to be honest with you, I, I truly believe that God was going to heal his body. Four years ago when he was diagnosed with cancer, I sat down with him. I drove down to Savannah for his first appointment, and we sat, we prayed, and for four years we prayed that God was going to heal him, like James 5 says, and we believed that God was going to heal him, and God did not heal him. And at the end of that day, on Saturday, as I held his hand, as I told him goodbye, as I cried with his wife, as I got back in the car, drove home to preach to you on Sunday, and then to drive back down on Tuesday to do his funeral, I wrestled with the question, do I really believe you, God? Do I really believe you? Have you ever been there? Maybe it was the job you didn't get, or the wayward child, you did everything right. You know what I'm saying? And they went off and they did all the wrong things anyway. And then everybody, everybody was so judgmental to you. Like you must have been a bad parent. <laughs> if you've ever been a parent, you know that's not true. Maybe it's a failed marriage. Maybe for some of you guys, you're just, you're dealing with sickness and infertility. Or you've been saving. You've been saving for years for that house and then interest rates are like, I don't know, 74% right now. <laughs> what do you do? When life is met with unmet expectations. C.S. Lewis, in his famous quote, he said, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Here's the big idea today, because I think that's heavy. I want you to get it. Uh, I'm going to give it to you from the very beginning. You need to sit in your pain. There's something to it. I, I, I want to give you the point of the entire message because, like, you need this, and I need this. Listen, here it is. Patience and eternal perspective is the key. It, it, the, the reality is, is that life is really difficult. And I'm continuing to learn. Uh, I'm continuing to learn this, and I want you to get it so badly. God is forming you into a certain type of person. And through all the difficulties, through all the disappointments in life, it is a gift that God gives you in the waiting and in the trusting. Oh, you're going to see this today. There's something sweet in what God is forming in you if you will let him. Listen, life is really, really, really difficult. And if you're a millennial like I am, the largest generation of all time, I got bad news for you. They lied to you. You're, you're not a snowflake, right? You're, you're not butterflies and rainbows. Not everybody gets a trophy. Life is hard. It's difficult. And when you get older and the older you get and the more you experience it, the more difficulties and disappointments you will have. But I want to show you there's something beautiful in the waiting. 
All right, James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. Ruminate, that on, ruminate on that for just a second. Farmers had to be patient about it. They had to be patient about it. They had to get up every single morning. They had to get good at their craft. They had to work really hard at it, right? They had to cultivate the earth, and they had to do this, and they had to do it over and over and over and over again with no results. See, for me, I just go to Publix and get my food. They had to cultivate the earth. They had to, they had to get good at the stuff. They had to understand that there was something going on underneath the surface, right? Underneath the surface that you couldn't see, and they had to believe that God was going to make it happen. You see, they had to be patient about it. They had to sit with it. They had to keep getting up every day before the sun got up. They had to work really hard. They had to go underneath all the different layers of the surface, if you know what I'm saying. You know what I love about verse 7? Right here, be patient, therefore. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. In matter of fact, it's, a, it's actually a, a, it's a, it's a unique cam, command. It's in the active present tense. Here's what he's saying. Don't just be patient once. Continually be patient. Get up and do something about it. Listen, y'all, I know that there are some real victims in this world, but let me just tell you, even though there's heavy oppression in this world and I get that there's real victim, we've got to stop playing the victim card. Culture has taught us that there's this huge problem, that every one of us are a victim and we should just sully in our stuff. Everybody plays the victim card these days, and James is sitting there saying, no, get up and get after it. As a Christ follower, you got to keep going. And listen, these first Christ followers, they were real victims. If you read the book of James, if you've been here every week, here's what you know. They were refugees. They were persecuted. They were taken advantage of. They had, even after they got to their new homes, they worked really hard in the fields, and then the, the owners of the fields robbed them of their stuff. False teachers came in and persecuted them to the point in which they said people were literally being murdered. They were real victims, and James doesn't say, just sit in your victimhood. He says, be patient, get up, get going, keep going. Y'all, your comfort isn't found in sitting around and hating your life. Your, your comfort is found in the realization that there is something going on, and it's be patient and keep going. Remember, remember what James told him in James chapter 1? Count it all a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I told you that, that, that that's a Greek word to mean remain under, to sit in that, to, to come underneath your suffering because that's where something happens and let the, the remaining under have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. That's the word mature. And then you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you know how you do that? Do you know how you become the full and the complete, the mature person that James is talking about is produced through the remaining under? It's when you're patient and you're suffering. You're so quick to move beyond it, aren't you? And God says, hey, what if I'm doing something in it? Don't miss it. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits with the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You see it? See it? Until the coming of the Lord. It's a unique Greek word, parasua, which actually means end times. There's a couple of end times words there, but, it, but it's a unique word because it means not that you go somewhere. It means that God's going to come back to you. It's actually a different set of expectations that God is coming to you. Think about it. The thing that gave these guys the ultimate hope of the resurrection was that God was going to come and live with them forever. They'd be patient, therefore, 
and wait for the coming of the Lord. You see, you see how this happens? Here's the question I have for you. Do you want heaven? Do you want to go somewhere? Do you want God? The thing that sustained them is that they didn't need a place. They needed a person. I'm telling you, the ultimate hope is not heaven. The ultimate hope is the presence of God. And if you don't get that, you will miss the whole point. Here's, here's the thing the first believers understood that can change your life. You were designed with a God-shaped hole in your heart. You, you've heard this before. Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, he talks about this. He talks about the vacuum of your heart that your soul needs. And if you try to fill it with anything else, it will never complete you. He says you're designed with this God-shaped hole, and you need to be filled, filled up and completed. You need, you need a person, not a place to do that, because you were designed in what the Bible calls as the imago Dei, the image of God, and you were designed to be in relationship with him. The hope that these guys had was that Jesus was going to come back and be with them in person, and he was going to fulfill the ultimate longings of their souls. Now watch it again. See how the farmer waits for his precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it until it receives the early and the late range. You, you wait like a farmer. Again, let me, let me tell you this. How does a farmer wait? Well, he works while he waits. He gets up early. He cultivates the field. He plants the seed. He expects the rain. He creates rhythms of habits. And he does things while he waits. See, the thing you've got to do when things are hard is just keep going. I'm telling you, I do a lot of counseling in my job, and one of the things I get whenever there's this paralysis of anxiety and depression, which is so rampant in our city, is this. Just do something. If you can't get out of bed, make a list of things you can accomplish that day, and it might be as little as brushing your teeth. Do something. I was in Richmond, Virginia a couple years ago, uh, maybe a year or two ago, and I was on a run. Um, I, I enjoy running. It's a way to, to just exercise my, my mind out of the, the, the pressures of this world. And I'm on a run with a guy, a friend of mine, a new friend, and he's Rwandan. And, and we're telling each other our stories, and he tells me how he um, grew up in Rwanda. And he's maybe 35 to 40, which you know was when the Rwandan genocides were happening. And he tells me how his sister was... Bad things were happen happened to her, and she didn't make it. And they took him as a little boy and made him a child soldier, and he did really hor horrible, horrible things. Then he escaped to Kenya, um, went to a refugee camp where he grew up, never knowing where his family was, and he gets to the end of that, and he meets a missionary girl. They get married. They move to Richmond, Virginia. I meet him because um, he had had a bad day. Um, uncharacteristically went off the hinges and he was wrestling with how do you deal with the things that he had done in his past. You know what he told me? He says, Satan wanted to rob me of the life that Jesus had purchased for me. And he wanted to hold me in bondage to my past and the only thing that I could do was move forward. He said, I had to realize that Jesus was more patient with me than I could have ever imagined so I needed to be patient with myself. I just needed to keep going. You know you're a work in progress? Like you are more than your biggest disappointment and your greatest achievement. You know that, right? You haven't arrived. You have, I think the thing that we like to talk about a lot today is this idea of agency. You have agency. You are a person. Um, you are a work that's being cultivated. You are the field of God's grace that he is molding into something good right now. And what you need to do is understand that the harvest is coming and you need to keep going. In the waiting room of God's grace, you are becoming the type of person that God wants to use. It's a, it's a strange thing when you think about it, but it's beautiful. Think, think about it. God is molding you like clay, and it doesn't always feel good. 
But in the end, you will become the masterpiece of his grace if you will let him. Can I give you a word of advice? You're not a finished product. So here, here it is. Get a job. Get a hobby. Do something. Keep going. Listen, every single person that God has used greatly in the Bible had to wait a significant amount of time for God to use them. You know that, right? And it was not always very pleasant. Think about Abraham. Abraham was promised that he would have a son that would become the heir of the entire world. By the way, did you know he was 100 years old when God made him that promise? 100 years of infertility, 100 years of waiting, 100 years of unmet expectations. And then when God finally showed up, he makes the promise to him in his old age, and it's still several years before that actually happens. How about Joseph? Joseph is told that he is going to, he's going to be the one that his brothers would bow down to and God would use, and that sounds great until your brothers beat you up, put you in a hole, sell you as a slave, you become a prisoner because a woman, Potiphar's wife, lies about you, and it's not until years later, after you interpret some dreams, that you become the prince of Egypt that saves the entire world. Moses. Moses spent 40 years wandering around in the desert before God ever brought them close to the promised land. Paul, 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 on the Damascus Road, one thing you don't realize about Paul is after his conversion experience, it was 15 years before he started his ministry, and he ended up writing most of the New Testament. David, David, the anointed king, he is anointed because Jesse doesn't have a son that he thinks is better whenever Samuel comes to him, and then it's seven years into the sheepfold before he goes and fights Goliath after his anointing, then he gets anointed as king, and then he runs for his life for several years after that before he actually gets the kingdom, and Jesus 30 years, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world, 30 years before he ever starts his public ministry, and some of y'all think that you should get a seat at the table at 22. Here's the deal. God is never late, he's rarely early, and he's always on time. Have you ever thought that it's in the waiting room that God is forming you into the type of person that he's calling you to be? (laughs) When you get the platform before the character, bad things tend to happen. Y'all, I see it all the time. Like Dustin, our, one of our elders says, never trust a man that doesn't walk with a limp. <laughs> Look, limps, limps give you empathy. They give you trust. Walking faithfully with limps give you the ability to, to enter in and the credibility to do your job. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I hate my limps. Like, I'm serious. I wish that my family never went through any of the things that they went through. I wish that my past was easier. I wish that my wife didn't spend her whole summer in the hospital this year. But here's what I know is that God uses those things to create credibility in you for other people and a sense of character when you walk with him. Y'all, I know you hate your limps too, but God is using them. You see, your limbs are a gift from God. You need to cultivate an eternal perspective and reframe the way that you see your life. Like A.W. Tozer famously said, God can't use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. By the way, this is true. But let me give you a word, a word of warning. You don't have to go looking for limbs. They will find you. Okay? You don't have to go looking for them. You just need to wait with expectation. Don't play the victim card. Lean into God and the truth of the gospel, and believe God in it, and good things will happen. Until that time comes, verse 8, you also be patient. See it again? Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see the pattern? Be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. 
can establish your hearts. You see, there are so many things competing for your hearts. Every, every trial, every temptation, and it's going to war for your hearts. Can I just tell you that your heart is so precious that everything in this cosmic world wants it? Satan wants your heart. Jesus wants your heart. There are always things competing for your heart. And James says, hey, in your patience, establish your heart. Be comforted. Be comforted. And here's how. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. Jesus is coming soon, and he's coming for you. He's coming to fix this world and bring his kingdom down. So be patient. Establish your heart and remember the Lord is at hand. See, don't miss the fact that James commands you to be patient again. He does this because he knows that it's hard and you're hard-headed. So we need both of those. You know, my wife says that there are two. She says, you know, Billy, you have a really hard time listening. And she's like, there's two things you need to work on in life. She says, you need to work on your patience. And I kind of forgot the other thing, so that's just my... No, I just get it. I just get it. They need a little levity there. There, there. there are two things that we all need to work on. Here they are. We got to cultivate patience in our lives. And we got to start living as if Jesus really is coming back soon. See, the early, the early church believed that Jesus was going to come back any time. And that shaped the way that they lived. They loved their neighbors and they loved their enemies because they didn't want Jesus to come back and find them hating people, right? They endured suffering because they knew that Jesus was going to come back and fight their battles. By the way, did you know that there are literally angel armies that are going to fight the evil of this world and they're going to do it because Jesus loves you? They're going to come back. Jesus said over and over and over again that he's coming soon. Matter of fact, in the very last chapter of the Bible, John says three times that Jesus is going to come soon. Now watch what, James, watch what Peter says, because I think it's really important. He says a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. God's time is not your time, and God's delay is not because he's mad at you. God's delay is because he wants to see even more people experience the grace of God in his kingdom. Think about that. If Jesus came back today, that would be really great news for some of you and really bad news for others. What if God's delay is actually his grace? So the next time you pray, God, I can't wait till you come back. Well, think about your lost neighbor and do something about it. Do you realize the older you get, the more this makes sense? The more time makes sense, right? For a kid, a day is a really long time. My daughter, my daughter has the coolest birthday ever. It's on Halloween. It's tomorrow. And she's been counting down the days for the last two weeks. And, and for her, it's like 20 years. For us, it's like, man, I just remember when she was born. And I cannot believe she's already seven. Now, do you realize that for you, it speeds up? Now, imagine what a thousand years feels like to God. Maybe if because he's eternal, a thousand years actually feels like, and for you it feels like a million years because you're, you're kind of like a kid. See, God is graciously forming you. He's graciously forming you, and he's changing the world before he returns. But don't miss this. He is going to return soon. So let that frame your thinking. Let that frame your thinking of what he's going to do in the world. Jesus really is coming back. And he's coming back with his presence and the fullness of joy. And in his presence, there is a way that God is making for you to be the type of person you're always supposed to be. Now this, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, one of the things you do as you write sermons is you have to figure out how to connect the dots. 
And I'll just be honest with you. I sat with verse 9 for a long time, and I tried to think, what's the point, and how did this all make sense? Here it is. Here's what I came to. When you grumble all the time, you might be putting your hope in the wrong thing. You might be putting your hope in people instead of God. I think that's what James is saying. Here, here's how I would say it in the, the Billy Standard version is when you don't cultivate patience and expectation in Jesus, you just become a curmudgeon, right? Everything, everything's bad. You, you know what I'm talking about, the pessimistic person that's always gossiping and complaining about everything going on. Life is never good. No, like, and, and it's even more than that. Listen, hurt people hurt people. You see, see, this is what he's saying. So instead of patiently cultivating your life with expectations, you put people down to lift yourself up. And when you compare yourself like that, you put yourself in a position of judge. If you don't believe me, go spend the afternoon on social media and check back in. Right? Sometimes life puts you in a pressure cooker, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Isn't it just hard? And on those bad days, on those bad days, you need to feel like you're lifting yourself up. So the way that you do that is you tend to put people down. Like, we've all been there. But think about how detrimental that is when the church, the body of Christ, makes one another the object of their wrath because they're not satisfied in Jesus. Here's the deal. Life is difficult. It's real. And some of you are going through some really difficult stuff right now. I've been with you. I've talked to you. You're carrying, you're carrying the, the weightiness of a sick parent. You're carrying the weightiness of relationship difficulties or the diagnosis of cancer, the lost job, the, the, you know, the endless pressures of life. And you're walking through real suffering, and it's challenging like nothing else. And the last thing you can do, though, is make other people the object of your wrath. It's not their fault. When Allison, my wife, if you're new around here, went into the hospital this summer, um, our elder team, in all their kindness, they, they wanted to care for me um, really well. And, and listen, I, I don't know if it was the time. So, so we, we had a meeting um, right after, and, and I was at level 10 max, all right? I just got back from a 10-mile run around the city, and I ran hard. I sat down at that table, and they, they were caring for me, and they were loving me, and I went off. I, I actually, I, I'm not one that cusses very often. I cussed at Dustin. Now, was, was, was it Dustin's fault? Probably. Like, if you know him, he probably deserved it. But I projected their, my hurt onto them, and they were trying to care for me and love me. In all seriousness, when we lose our ability to see God, we project our hurt onto other people, and everyone gets hurt. That is not fit for the church of Jesus Christ. Notice this. For the third time, James says, don't project onto other people, but realize that God is coming soon. See, that's both a comfort and a warning, isn't it? He's coming soon. The key to growing in godliness is having the eternal perspective, the perspective that God is coming soon. There, there's real power in this. It's powerful because God's coming should create expectancy and fear. Let me give you an example of this. When mama goes out of town, there's expectancy and fear for her to come home. There's expectancy because my kids are like, I'm going to get a hot meal, a shower, and finally brush my teeth, right? Because I didn't do anything. There's real fear in me. Like the day before she gets home, we're like, you got to get going. We got to clean the house. We got to get it all done. You got to throw everything in the closet. I don't care where it goes, but when your mom gets home, if it's not done, I'm in trouble, not you. So let's get this thing going. It's like a man around a fire. You ever seen a man around a fire? They're like, ooh. Oh, look at that. They used to sit around a fire all day long. For no reason. They're, they're like in awe of the fire. Like they, I mean, but fires are cool, right? They, they, they bring life. They, they can um, produce heat. They can refine things. But you get too close to that fire and you'll get burned. 
God's coming should create expectancy and a bit of fear. If, if you will, it should take, take you to a place to where you're terrified enough that you clean up the house. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what it's supposed to be. There's a fear of which God is coming soon, but there should be an expectancy that you're going to get a hot meal when he finally returns. See, if you knew that God was coming soon, here's what would happen is you'd probably change the channel at night. You probably wouldn't watch that stuff. You probably wouldn't treat people so poorly. You'd probably be a little more generous. You'd live with an expectation. Robert Murray McEachern said it this way, if I could hear Christ just praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't feel, fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. Something happens when you know that God is near, when he's close. It creates expectancy and fear. And I'm just telling you, it reframes your life. Now watch this. James says it another way, the way that we cultivate patience in this life. Here it is, verse 10. An example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. We have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Here it is. Here it is. Remember God's past faithfulness, compassion, and mercy. It's really that simple. I've said, I've said it before. God's past faithfulness is a guarantee of his future faithfulness. At the cross, Jesus proved his love by the cross and his power over life, death, and every other enemy by the resurrection. So James says, listen, you're not the first person to suffer. Job. Job suffered. And listen, if you know the story of Job, he never knew chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 give you the why behind the what. You know why chapters 1 and 2 are there in the book of Job? They're there for you. They're there for you. You needed to see behind the curtain a little bit. You needed to pull the veil back. And you needed to see that God has a purpose that's bigger than anything that you could ever know. You know, Job, all Job had was bad days. All Job had was bad days. Job buried his kids. And listen, there's nothing worse than that. There's nothing more painful than kid pain. And if you have kids, you know that. His friends left him. His wife told him to curse God and die. How did he do it? How did he continue to worship God through such terrible suffering? Here's what he knew. He didn't know the first chapter, but he knew the last. He knew the last. He knew that God was ultimately kind to him, that he just needed to keep going because God's kindness was going to show through. And, 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 and he, he extended his horizons past his sufferings. Job knew, as he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see the Lord in the land of the living. He knew his future, and he anchored his life to what he knew. And just like Job, God is kind and compassionate to you too. You know, there's one job description that I would never want in my entire life. Do you know what it is? Prophet. Do you know how bad their lives was? Have you read the Old Testament? Their, their job description was, hey, go tell everybody in your country that they suck. That they're going to die and burn if they don't come back to Jesus. So it's like, great, I, I want that job. The first missionary ever was Jonah. Do you, do you know what Jonah did? He took the prophetic message to Nineveh. Do you know where Nineveh was? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, which is modern-day Iraq. And the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were known for crushing the Israelites. They killed them. They killed their babies. They made them suffer. They enslaved them. And God's like, go tell them about me. And by the way, Jonah wasn't mad that God told him to go tell them about me. God, Jonah was mad not because of God's wrath. He was mad because of God's compassion. Jonah was like, you're going you're gonna to forgive them? And God's like, I forgave you, didn't I? 
See, it's easy to preach to people who like you. It's easy for me to preach to you. Imagine going and telling your enemies that killed your babies and enslaved you and took your wives that God loves you too. See, sometimes we forget, we forget the previous generations. And James is like, you got to remember. you got to remember that, that, that this isn't new, and yet God was faithfully shaping the world and loving them the entire time. Did you forget about Jeremiah? Jeremiah was left to die in a mud pit. How about Daniel that was fed to lions? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that was put to fire. David who um, fled from Saul for his life. And every single one of the apostles who died for their faith except for John because he was boiled alive on the island and then put to the island of Patmos because he survived it. Do you know what all these people had in common? Hebrews chapter 11 tells you they lived for another kingdom because this world was not worthy of them. They, they lived for an eternal kingdom. Listen, we aren't any different there's a common experience which, which, which actually binds us together. And by the way, that's why you need community. That's why if you're not in a small group, you need to get into a small group because every single one of us is going through things. And as we go through them together, what you do is you end up getting hope for the next stage. Life is hard. And I don't know why we expect it to be easy. We always think it's going to be somebody else but not me until that door, until that day comes a knocking. See, sometimes you need to know your history so that you can reframe your present God loves you, and the gospel proves that. Jesus died for you. As a matter of fact, he didn't just die for you. He died instead of you, and that makes all of the difference. You have a great high priest who sympathizes in every way as you because he has experienced everything you have. Do you know where the ultimate community is of somebody who understands you? Go talk to the guy who watched his son get murdered for you and act like he doesn't understand what you're going through. He knows the pain of a loss of a child. He knows the pain of injustice, and he wants you to come to him. You need to know the truth of the gospel, and you need to lean into it in your suffering. You need to sing the songs of truth over yourself and be reminded of God and learn rightly to thrive in the middle of the battle. You have to set your eyes beyond your suffering to a greater horizon. Listen to me. Write this down. You need to worship your way through your suffering. Take note of this, underline it in your Bible, do whatever you need to do with this, highlight it. I don't care what you do, but remember this, behold, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who remained under. Remember last week I told you that the book of James is pretty much a compilation of Jesus, his, his brother's Sermon on the Mount. Remember the blessed, the beatitudes, blessed is he who does this, Jesus says that. Here's his beatitude, blessed is those who remain steadfast. That word blessed there, does it, it's more than happy, it, it, it actually it's not subjective, it's not emotional, it's objective. Here's the objective truth. If you remain in your suffering, God is happy with you. He smiles down on you. If you endure, he makes you whole. Some of you guys, you, you love to say things like, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. They were blessed, but they, and they were highly favored, and it was really hard. God was smiling down on them. They didn't find their hope in the fact that they had prosperity. They found their hope in the humility of knowing that God, God loves them, sees them, and he's going to come back. Now this, above all, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath and let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. <coughs> See, there's a, a huge temptation to make short-term vows in your suffering and James is saying, don't do that, you'll always regret it. Have you ever, um, you ever prayed like a sinner at confession whenever you hit turbulence on an airplane? Right? One time I was, um, 
I was in India, and I was flying on an in-country flight, and I made the, the rookie mistake of letting the missionary book my flight. And that's a rookie mistake because they always go the cheapest route ever. And he booked me a flight on SpiceJet. I'm not kidding. Google it if you want. SpiceJet was an old Russian prop jet plane, and it was offensive to even call it a jet. Right? So we get on this plane. There's a curtain that divides the pilot from us. Curtain, not, not a door. Um, and there's ashtrays. And I'm like, who the heck is smoking on an airplane? Like, can somebody open up a window so we don't die of, of asphyxiation? Well, we get going. We're in the air. And we hit some turbulence. And I'm talking like, not like American turbulence. Like, hey, buckle up because we're going to just do this for a second. Like, we hit it. And we dropped and people are screaming. And then we hit it again, and the flight attendants are screaming. Come to find out, because I Googled it later, these planes go down all the time. Which, like, why, why would you put me on that? Like, spend 26 extra dollars and put me on Air India. But he didn't, um, because that 26 bucks was going to feed somebody. Uh, well, flight attendants start screaming. The guy next to me grabs my thigh. I thought he was going to try to make a covenant with me. And he says, um, he says dude, we're going to die. I'm like, Thanks, Captain Obvious. About 30 seconds later, one of the pilots comes out with aviators on. I'm like, what, what are you doing? And the next 30 seconds, another pilot comes out. And the next thing I'm thinking is, who the heck is flying this plane? Right? We land safely. Two days later, it just becomes a good story. But I'm telling you, what ended up happening is I prayed. I prayed. I gave my firstborn son away. I became a missionary. I gave away all my money. And James is saying, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't curse God when you're angry. And don't overpromise and underdeliver to God when you're desperate. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, because at the end of the day, you will regret it. See, when things get hard, you don't, you don't normally passionately trust you anxiously overpromise and underdeliver. And what you end up putting on the line is your integrity. What you don't do and what you do in those moments matter. You don't want to mortgage your life to God for short-term fixes, and honestly, you don't want to regret saying things that you tend to say when you're angry at God either. Life is difficult, and suffering is real. Here's the danger. Write it down. The danger here is that when you do that, when you do what James is saying, you will walk away from a relationship with Jesus, and you'll enter into a transaction with Jesus. The main point is you really don't want God. You just want something from him, and you miss the entire point. Listen, that's where legalism in religion starts. When you make vows because you want something. Like Joby Martin said, we don't follow Jesus because for a better life. We follow Jesus because he's better than life. The thing that Jesus offers you is his presence. The way you access that is by cultivating an eternal perspective in the middle of the suffering. Don't make Jesus your magic eight ball. Don't offer, don't offer God short-term fixes. Because he's not willing to give them. He wants long-term solutions. He wants something much better for you. The reason, the reason he lets you suffer, listen to me, is because he loves you. Like the philosopher Immanuel Kant said, you know, that guy, like the guy none of us have ever read, but we've all heard of. He says this, if there were no suffering in the world, everything would be way worse because we'd be self-indulgent and it would ruin us. We'd become, we'd become narcissistic egomaniacs. God allows you to suffer because he wants to bring you back into a relationship with him. And at the end of the day, he wants to alleviate your ultimate suffering. That's the point. All suffering in the believer's life is an opportunity to lean in deeper into a relationship with Jesus. And the overflow of that love is that you become more complete, humble, and steadfast. At the end of the day, temporary suffering 
will give weight to an eternal glory that nothing can compare. Paul, Paul said it this way. For this light and momentary affliction, by the way, for him, if you ever go read the book of 2 Corinthians, was beat down after beat down after beat down. It was not light and momentary. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see it? The gospel offers you something so much better than quick fixes and easy solutions. Jesus offers you wholeness, completeness. He offers you a beautiful song that connects your life to eternity, and every single minute of it is him ushering in heaven on earth. Listen, God's not just satisfied with simply saving you for some future reality. He wants to change your eternity now. He wants to satisfy you now. He wants to give you the joy of the abundant life now. And sometimes, like a good surgeon, God has to cut you to heal you. Like a good farmer, you've got to keep cultivating the field of life. And eventually, the harvest of God's righteousness will come. You've got to keep looking through your suffering to see the harvest. You have to live with the end in mind. I'm telling you, friend, the prize is there for those who finish the race. Just keep going. Just keep believing. Be patient. Keep going. And what you will get is you will get God. By the way, can I tell you the answer to the entire passage? The way you do all this stuff? Live with an eternal perspective. What do you do when life is met with unmet expectations? You cast your mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. You know, I believed, I believed that God was going to heal Mark. And he did. Right now, his faith has become sight, and he's standing in the presence of the Almighty. And he's hearing, well done, you good and faithful servant. Father, I pray. I pray that you would use these words to cast our mind to Calvary. That you would use these words to show us that there really are no unmet expectations in you. They're just delayed because you're cultivating something better. The harvest of your righteousness is coming. Help us, Jesus, to live in the middle. In Jesus' name.